Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. There's a lot going on uh, lately in, in the world of news and politics. Uh, our main question uh, today is going to be Trump's demeanor heading into the home stretch uh, of the election. Uh, just earlier today, recording this on Thursday, he sent out a tweet questioning uh, whether the election should be delayed. I saw a swift reaction uh, across the uh, political spectrum. This comes uh, a week after an interview with uh, Fox Su Sunday uh, TV show host Chris Wallace, where he uh, didn't say whether he would concede the election. So we'll talk about that as our as our main question for today. But first, I want to talk about the COVID-19 developments here in Arizona. And at the end of the podcast, we will have some uh, quick fire questions to finish it off. Uh, so let's get started with some COVID-19 uh, news and uh, analysis. Uh, another Thursday press conference by uh, Governor Ducey and uh most of the criticism now uh, is that people want strict or more clear metrics for things like opening uh, schools is, is the biggest one. I think people are frustrated with uh, him kind of saying, well, let's just give it a, let's just give the leadership up to the uh, local schools and uh, you know, the cities to make these decisions. Seems like people want more strict metrics and then mandates from the from the governor's office to say this is what this is what happens when the numbers go down. Here's what you do if you have a case in a high school. Here's what you have to do. Uh, what's your take on on those requests? Those those uh, um, what's your take on whether he should? Uh, implement those strict metrics uh, or your reaction to the to the demands for those? Well, I, I think it's understandable that people would want bright lines where you say, on this side of the line, it's safe. On that side of the line, it's unsafe. Um, but the management of this disease just doesn't lend itself um, to those kind of bright lines. Uh, and uh, where the line is, uh, will differ from person to person uh, based upon the degree of risk that they are uh, comfortable uh, taking. Uh, and there's no scientific consensus as to where that bright line should be. So I think the approach that's being taken with the schools, generally speaking, is the appropriate one. Uh, and that is to empower um, administrators who hopefully in turn will empower teachers uh, and empower um, parents uh, to make their own decisions uh, as to what risks they are comfortable taking. Uh, and uh, the perception will differ from person to person uh, and based upon circumstances. So, uh, I just don't think that the management of the of this disease lends itself to those sort of uh, bright line tests that say once the numbers hit this, you do that, and if they rise to this other number, you do this other thing. Um, that's just not the nature of managing this disease. We don't know 
enough about it, uh, including how extensive it is in the community at present, uh, in order to be, in, in order to have any true meaning behind such uh, matrices. The school choice community has been pretty vocal, the advocates, about uh, pushing for more open access to, to vouchers, to, to ESAs for, for students that whose schools may be closed or may not offering the, the same type of educational service they, they did before. To be able to take that money um, into there's micro schools and pods that are becoming popular now with parents. Um, I know you are in favor of sort of quote unquote backpack funding in general. Uh, is this emergency situation a a cause for a, a legislature uh, to come back and, and try to make a, a dramatic shift in the way school funding is handled? Or do you think that the best governing strategy is just to shore up our existing structures of school until we can try to manage? I, I think the pushback to any opening whatsoever um, by the teachers unions uh, in Arizona and across the country underscore the value of um, school choice and backpack funding uh, so that parents have options. Um, however, given the flexibility that's been granted to um, all schools in Arizona, um, district schools, charter schools, private schools, uh, to make their own decisions, I don't see that there's any emergency that would warrant um, some kind of massive uh, expansion of school choice funding to meet that particular emergency. Uh, different schools, district, charter, and private will be making different decisions as to how comfortable they are um, opening and to what degree they're comfortable opening. Uh, and parents can make decisions based upon the very broad availability of school choice options in Arizona already. So while I understand politically wanting to take advantage of the circumstances, uh, and while I do believe that it underscores the general case, I don't believe that there's an emergency in Arizona uh, that would warrant doing something with respect to school choice funding that you wouldn't otherwise do. So let's switch gears here and talk about the upcoming election and the question of Trump's demeanor heading into it. And I think, I mean, Republicans' reactions to Trump, I think, sometimes is just brushing it aside as, oh, it's just Trump being Trump, and he's just goofing around his, his Twitter account. He's just owning the libs. But, I mean, the reality is, we have, I mean, the reality I think is disturbing. We have a president of the United States who is actively seeking to delegitimize the outcome of our election. The foundation, the bedrock of, of our democracy is peaceful transfers of power and respecting the, uh, you know, the having free and fair elections that are trustworthy by the body politic. How, how concerned do you think Americans should be by uh, the behavior we see from President Trump right now? Well, I think certainly 
uh, Trump's behavior is a legitimate and significant issue in, in the upcoming um, presidential election. And one of the questions that the body politic is going to have to ask itself is whether it really wants to put up with four more years of a perpetual uh, soap opera. Um, I, I am a bit dismissive of um, this particular tweet uh, of, of Trump's uh, and um, less dismissive uh, of his um, position, which is he took in the 2016 campaign as well, that uh, the election is going to be illegitimate except after he wins it. Um, but uh, there were um, primary elections that were postponed because of the COVID-19. There were calls by Democrats to postpone some primary elections um, because of COVID-19. Uh, raising the same question with respect to the November election. Well, I, I opposed those postponements. I would postpone this one. Um, but it's in an offhanded tweet. I, I don't think it's materially different than those things. And, and I also think the Democrats, with their constant, in my judgment, false cries of voter suppression, uh, in raising questions about the legitimacy of the outcome of races such as the Georgia gubernatorial race, um, also are undermining confidence in uh, the integrity of, of our elections. It's that uh, Trump is more crude about it. Uh, he has a bigger bully pulpit. Uh, he doesn't really have the any facade um, like um, the Democrats do with their accusations of voter suppression. But um, I, I, I think that in general, it would be good for both sides to grow up uh, and um, respect the fact that we probably have uh, the most vibrant uh, democratic process uh, in um, world history. Um, it's, it's, there are vulnerabilities we should discuss those vulnerabilities, um, but I, I, um, and, and and I do think, uh, and I know you feel strongly about this, uh, that Trump's demeanor and behavior uh, is a serious problem and a serious issue. Why do you think this specific tweet got such the reaction that it did? Yes, I am appalled by a lot of what. Trump does. And I'm, it bothers me that, that Republicans kind of accept it because I think they allow it to define uh, their party. And it's not right. And it's, it's a total contradiction to the sort of principled uh, character leadership that, uh, that Republicans used to say that they, su they supported and that they admired. Um, but this, this tweet got a swift reaction, uh, a lot of Republicans uh, push back against it, say it's not even an option, we're not going to do it, rather than just ignoring it as, as they might have uh, in other times. Plus, I'm not sure if you saw this, but the um, uh, Stephen Calabrese, the co-founder of the Federal Federalist Society, wrote a, wrote a piece for the New York Times um, very harsh uh, against, uh, against this, uh, saying... 
basically calling it fascist. He says, I'm quoting here from this piece, um, that he's frankly appalled at the president's recent tweet seeking to postpone the November election. Uh, until recently, I had taken as political hyperbole the Democrats' assertion that President Trump is a fascist, but this latest tweet is uh, fascistic and is itself grounds for the president's immediate impeachment again by the House representatives and his removal from office by the Senate. What is it? Why is this getting the reaction that, I mean, and not anything else has happened this past three and a half years? Um, Well, I I think what you just quoted, and I had read it, is a massive overreaction to a tweet that raised the question as to whether we should postpone the November election. And and again, within context, um, primary elections were postponed and Democrats were calling to postpone um, some that were not. I think there is a sense among Republicans that that Trump may be uh, a pretty big anchor on them uh, this November. Uh, and his tweet smacked of, of I'm behind, um, so I don't want to count votes. Uh, and I think there was a sharp desire um, by other Republicans, A, to squash the idea uh, before it gained any traction, uh, and to take a very convenient way to create a degree of separation between them and, and the president as, as the as November approaches and Trump's numbers uh, continue to look uh, bad, um, I think you will see Republican politicians showing a bit more of the moxie and independence that you've been looking for from uh, the get-go. Uh, it is in, in entirely self-serving, but this was sort of a um, sore loser uh, tweet um, that, uh, as I said, I think Republicans wanted to squash the idea. Uh, Doug Ducey did that in his press conference, saying that we, we are going to hold our election uh, as regularly scheduled in November, uh, and then also to start to achieve a degree of separation that you think they should have been making from the get-go. Yeah. I welcome it. I know there's some, you know, the Lincoln the Lincoln Project. There's there's some debate amongst the Never Trump uh, community about whether the quote unquote enablers of Trump should be, uh, you know, fiercely removed and and, and uh, opposed, or whether there is some sort of grace uh, for keeping coalitions beyond Trump. Uh, and Bill Crystal wrote an interesting piece for the Bulwark. Uh, uh, they're um, connected to the other Never Trump group, uh, Republican voters uh, against Trump. Um, but he wrote a piece that that's, that said there's three. He, he thought there was three tests for the future of the of the Republican Party, whether it's a um, you know a legitimate or moral governing force into the future, whether it can be. The first was whether they um, basically play ball with the Democrats on COVID-19 legislation um, instead of sort of holding out and uh, listening to whatever Trump wants. Uh, and, and basically this, the first test, he said, if, if they're 
um, make common sense COVID-19 relief legislation soon. Uh, The second one was stating out loud that they would not support Trump in this election, that they will not vote for him. He said, Bill Kristol said that they don't necessarily need to say they're voting for Biden, even though they should, but he said they should at least say out loud before the election that they don't think that Trump should be president for the next four years. And then the last one, the last test he said was um, basically affirming the outcome and and ensuring a, a free and fair election and protecting it from the delegitimization that Trump might try to make. Um, and for me, that last one is the most important one. I mean, uh, I don't Not everyone's going to say they're going to vote for Biden or, or say they're not going to vote for Trump. But I think the la- the final test is going to be when Trump, if, and when Trump loses and says, this was unfair, this is rigged. I'm still a president. What are elected Republicans and uh, officials going to do? Well, let me begin by saying that the first criteria that Crystal had is absolutely ludicrous. There is no such thing as um, sensible COVID-19 um, legislation, and the Democrats are uh, looking to push the country uh, dangerously into debt and deficits uh, and spend money unproductively and unwisely. So, um, and Crystal's been a, a never Trumper from an ardent uh, never Trumper from uh, the get go, and he was he applauded Sarah Palin uh, as John McCain's vice presidential candidate. So um, he does not have necessarily uh, clean hands when it comes to uh, not uh, supporting demagogic um, politicians. There's just something about this particular demagogic politicians that uh, sends him uh, over the edge. Uh, I do believe that you've got it right. Uh, If Trump does lose uh, and he claims that the results are illegitimate, um, although I generally don't believe you look to politicians to provide moral leadership as opposed to move policy incrementally in the right direction, uh, that will be a a moral test. and uh, we will see how existing Republican office holders or those who survive, um, if there is an anti-Trump um, landslide. And again, I'm not certain that there will be. I, I don't think the outcome of this election has yet been determined. Uh, but if there is, and he questions the results, um, there will be an important moral test um, irrespective, I believe that uh, turning the party over to Trump, and you were far more perceptive about that than I was. Uh, he, uh, he is now uh, the Republican Party and, and um, the other Republican office holders uh, have turned over the keys to him uh, and uh, swallowed their uh, reservations um, to a far greater extent than they should have. So there's no question that that's the case. Uh, And if Trump loses, there will need to be a reckoning within the party and a discussion as to what the party actually stands for, um, rather than what has become simply a vanity project 
on behalf of one man. Well, let's move into some closing quick fire questions here. First, Joe Biden says he's going to pick his vice president uh, candidate next week. Uh, who do you think are his best uh, options among his finalists? I think the three main ones that are talked about are Kamala Harris, Susan uh, Rice, and Karen Bass. But who knows? Um, well, the first two I know, and and um, I don't think that they would be uh, good choices. Um, Biden, Biden is torn uh, by a dilemma. Uh, in order to have a anti-Trump landslide on behalf of him, he has to be regarded as the return to normalcy, normalcy uh, interim president, which means that his vice presidential candidate needs to convey reassurance uh, to voters who aren't anxious to see a hard left turn uh, in the country. On the other hand, he feels as though apparently, even though he's won the nomination, he still has to cater to that uh, hard left uh, group. Um, Harris, um, who had been uh, more of a moderate and centrist, uh, completely in her own presidential race, uh, went full bore, hard left. Uh, Susan Rice was a disaster as the national security advisor to uh, Barack Obama, um, and um, I think would lack credibility uh, in terms of being the reassuring hand of what happens post Biden. So, so I think by playing identity politics with this pick, he is putting at risk the possibility of an anti-Trump landslide. Second question. Well, well, well you, you uh, know these people as well or better than I do. What, what do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he said, I've, I've read reports that he doesn't want to, it seems like he wants to, to govern <laughs> And not just be the guy who beat Trump, and so he's he said that he doesn't. I've read reports that he doesn't want to have someone that's basically campaigning for a president as soon as they, as soon as they get in. Which I think um, Kamala Harris, you know, would would be would be doing. I don't know. He wants someone that he can trust. So I, um, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I agree with your analysis of the situation. Um, well, you're one of your favorite politicians, Cory Booker, um, would play the identity politics I game. Yeah, except I, that he's not a woman. So yeah. he, he's ineligible to be vice president of the United States because of his gender. That's I would something like to Democrats see, need to figure out whether they're I mean, really I think, in favor of. I mean, even a long time ago, I always thought that Biden Booker would be a good uh, a good tag team uh, with it. But I think I, I haven't read much about Karen Bass, a congressman, a congresswoman uh, from I think California. Uh, but from from what I've read, she might be kind of kind of fitting in those uh, you know those check those uh, checking the boxes for what for what Biden wants. But we'll see what happens next week. 
Also coming up uh, this next week are the primaries in Arizona. Uh, there's one competitive uh, primary, the local level, the legislative uh, district 15, Nancy Bardo against Heather Carter. Uh, any predictions on whether the conservative or the moderate will come out of that race? Not really. I haven't delved into the race enough to really handicap it. Heather Carter's been, who is the incumbent, and she's the independent moderate, uh, has been a strong vote getter um, in that uh, district. Um, Nancy Bartow, the challenger, the more conservative challenger, um, used to be a state senator from that district, is currently a um, representative from it. Uh, Carter has a ton more money behind her uh, than Bartow. Um, so, um, I would frankly be surprised if Carter were to lose, but I haven't, uh, delved into it enough to really be able to handicap the race. And then last, last question, uh, the Republican Senate primary, we talked about it a couple of podcasts ago, um, incumbent Martha McSally against challenger, uh, Daniel McCarthy. You've, you've kind of put 25% as the, as the range where McSally it'd be a sign that it wasn't just, you know, the, the typical dissenting voters, that it would be a, a problematic sign. You have a, if you had to put money on a over or under on 25% for McCarthy, what would you, what would you put? I would be surprised if he gets to 25%. So and, and if he does, I do think it's another highly troublesome sign for McSally's general election uh, prospects. She lost in 2018 a um, disproportionate number of Republicans in her race against uh, Kirsten Sinema. Um, it, with, with Democrats sharply closing the Republican registration advantage since 2018, um, she can ill afford um, a, a similar leakage of Republican support in this election. I mean, is turnout is turnout going to be a, a factor here? I was just looking back in at 2018, Arpaio and Joe Arpaio and Kelly Ward were running against uh, against her, and those were like big name recognition. It was you know it's a midterm elections, and they combined for almost 47 percent, um, I think, uh, definitely over 40 percent combined. Arpaio and Kelly. Uh, I mean, this time you've seen McSally lose an election. Um, be, become appointed by Governor Ducey, and then, and then there's this unknown person for for most people that's running against her. Uh, she's been, you know, pretty close to Trump. It, it, are Republicans going to be motivated to turn out to vote for her? Uh, is it is it possible that you know the motivation of voter turnout will affect the percentage? expected percent. I mean, I haven't seen any polls or anything. But. Well, there aren't, there are some contested primaries at, at the legislative level. <laughs> at the county level, um, Joe Arpaio is trying to make a uh, oh, yeah. uh, engagement, but there's really not that something that's going to drive turnout. Uh, so it is going to be the Republican Party faithful. Uh, in 2018, McSally, it was an open seat. Uh, McSally was thought to be the establishment candidate from the McCain wing of the party. 
Uh, and so the insurgent wing viewed her with suspicion. So the fact that she won with a little over 60% of the vote or so was not a surprise. Uh, now um, she is the candidate of both the establishment and the in insurgents. Um, she is a semi-incumbent, even though she was appointed, not elected. Uh, and McCarthy is an unknown and hasn't run much of a campaign. So whatever vote he gets is most fairly interpreted as a protest vote against McSally. Uh, and at this point in time, if she's losing a significant hunk of the Republican faithful who will vote in an unexciting primary, um, that's a serious problem. Yeah. Well, the other news is Suns are playing tomorrow. First official game, go Suns. <laughs> and Diamondbacks are kind of struggling, I think. I'm taking the over on 25% on McCarthy, by the way. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Demand uh, everyone. <laughs> Demand Daniel. Uh, I think I think, I think, think just that just that enthusiasm gap, I mean, I, I haven't looked at any polls. I haven't really, you know, done any deep, deep analysis or, or anything, but they seem like, uh, um, sort of evangelical sort of, uh, crew. And, and I don't know, if, I don't, I don't know if McSally has the same base, uh, that, that she thinks she has. I don't know. We'll see. I'm very interested to see that, that outcome. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the political notebook podcast. Uh, you can subscribe, on any podcasting app, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks.